0: I would have. (laughs) He's not somebody I would have expected uh, to want uh, the Lord Jesus, right? Uh, Don't don't we look at religious people and we think, you know what? uh, They've got their thing, and they wouldn't be interested in what I want to say to them. Of course, it's not true in this case because we saw that Nicodemus did come to the Lord, and then we saw the Lord Jesus dealing with the woman at the well, and she was a wicked woman. And we would look at her and we would say, well, you know, there's not much chance for her either. And yet, she did. She came to the Lord and she trusted him. And um, last night we looked at the blind man. And the blind man was probably a good candidate as far as we're concerned. Um, He was needy and if the Lord did something for him, he, he would help him. Tonight we're going to look at the rich young ruler. And of all the characters we've looked at, to my mind, He's the, he's the one that I would reckon would actually come to the Lord. He's good. Uh, he is eager. And the Bible tells us that Jesus loved him. And yet that's not what happens. So as we look at him tonight, now I, I, I do think there's more to the story of the rich young ruler than we see in these pages. I think there's more to it. And I, I'll tell you what I think. Uh, and it's what I think, by the way. It's not what the Bible says, What I think as far as what happens with the, with the rich young ruler. Uh, but there's more to, to it than just what we're reading in these pages. But he comes and he's a perfect candidate for salvation. If he walked in that door, we'd be saying, yeah, that guy's going to get saved tonight. He's, he's going to come to the Lord. And he's the one that walks away without. That's a word of prayer and then we'll read. Father, would you bless us tonight now, Lord? And Lord, would you put your hand upon each one here, Lord, for that one that has a barrier between them and you. Oh Lord Jesus, would you step into this room and remove that barrier for them. Lord, may no one go out into the night tonight without knowing you as their Savior, Lord. May no one that's tuned in tonight that's watching online, Lord, go to their beds tonight without coming to know you. Oh Lord, would you do a work, because we can't do it, or would you pour out a blessing upon us? In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now we're going to read, start reading tonight uh, in verse 15, and we're going to read just a little bit beyond our story of the rich young ruler, because we want to get the context of it, because the context is important uh, to this story. Verse 15, and they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, little children, to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter in. And children have no guile. They believe what we tell them. They will actually take in. They they absorb it uh, like a sponge. Uh, They they receive uh, what we tell them. And The disciples were keeping these children away from Jesus, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 let them come. These are the ones that will receive me. You see, the Pharisees are fighting with them. Nicodemus is arguing with them. A woman at the well is arguing with them. Uh, All of these people are are kind of going to and fro with Jesus, but the children are saying, yes, and they are receiving. And see the point he makes? He says, unless you become... Uh, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter in. And you know what it takes for us to be saved? It takes a childlike faith. It doesn't take a great knowledge, understanding, and working it all out. It takes a childlike faith, trusting in what Jesus is telling, what Jesus is saying. And uh, we need to receive our blessings from God in the same way. Then we start with the rich young ruler, right? And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All this have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet likest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they, when they heard it, said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there is no man that hath left houses, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting." And I just want to make the point on those last two verses. We're not going to deal with them. You can't give up something for God and not get back much more. You can't. And if you've done it, if you tested him on that point, you found him to be true on that. God is a great giver. Uh, he gives far more than we can. Uh, he, he waits for us to give before he gives, but he gives far more than we can. So what he's asking of this rich young ruler and he, he, he says to him, "He tells the yellow riches in the kingdom of heaven." He, he he's not asking him to give something for nothing. He's saying, "Listen, if you give, I will give you much more." But the ruler has a problem with that. We have a problem with money, don't we? Money is just something very powerful in our lives. But when you have money, you tend to depend upon it. All of us have in our minds the idea that if if you had enough money, you'd be independent but do you know what you'd be independent of or what you think you would? you think you'd be independent of God if you had enough money. You could go along with your life and, 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 and nothing could touch you. And you see, money presents with us, presents to us the possibility of another God. Something that will take care of us other than God. And that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is going after with this man. His money's not the problem. His dependence upon his money is the problem. Because remember, God asks of us faith. Not just faith in a moment to be saved, but faith to live. He asks us to live trusting in. Now, what is faith? Well, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, believe that he's God, he's in charge, he's in control. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If I'm going to have faith in God, I have to put my trust in him and depend upon him to take care of me. And let's face it, that's hard. That is hard for us as believers. And it's particularly hard for us uh, before we come to that place of trusting him as Savior. And Jesus has the ability to dismantle our false gods in front of our eyes. And bring us to the place where where we're trusting in him. And perhaps he's done that in your life. Perhaps he's actually done, the, perhaps he's actually dismantled something and taken it apart so that you could actually come to the place where you were trusting in him and not something else, in him and not money, in him and not relationships, in him and not your job, in him and whatever it was. Because there's, a, there's, a, there's umpteen things that we can find uh, to put our trust in and they are all false gods and really he, ha- he has to unseat them in our lives for us to come to the sweet place where he wants us to be. I think that's what he's doing with this rich young ruler. So verse 18, and a certain ruler came to him saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And this man Is interested. He wants eternal life. He wants to know he's saved. He wants to know that he has a home in heaven. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, it says this And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and said, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Right? So somehow Jesus had drawn this man and he comes running. I have a picture in my mind of this scene and he comes running and he skids in on his knees. He is that keen. He is that interested. He is really eager. Uh, He's very interested. Uh, We'd be excited about someone like this. We would look at it. We would call it a divine appointment. We would see uh, God at work in this man's heart. And we would say, listen, he's just just next door to the kingdom of heaven. Uh, He's ready to be saved. In spite of the cost, in spite of the fact that uh, he he would get kicked out of the synagogue and he was a ruler amongst the Jews, uh, he he wanted Jesus. He wanted what Jesus was offering. He was drawn, he was compelled to come. But Jesus has some hard questions for him. Jesus just doesn't uh, give him some pat answer. He has some hard questions for him. Uh, Jesus, first of all, says to him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. Now that seems odd, doesn't it? You see, remember, when you're talking to Jesus, Jesus knows everything. He knows what you're thinking. Other people think they know what you're thinking. But if you're standing before Jesus talking to him, he knows what you're thinking. He knows where this man is coming from. He knows where his dependence is. He knows everything that's going on. And when God comes to dealing with you in salvation, he knows more about you than you do. And you have to understand that. And he's able to work in your life, and he's able to work in our lives uh, in in, in amazingly individual ways so that he can put his finger on something in your life and really make you smart, as it were, because he knows exactly where you are. And this man comes to him and he says to him, "'Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God.'" First question, "'Only God is good, so why do you call me good?' You see, this man was a good man. And Jesus needed to, uh, before he could talk to him about eternal life, he needed to define what good was. Uh, The moral worth of a person must be measured against a proper example of goodness. God is the only valid benchmark, and he revealed his holy character through the Mosaic law. That's basically saying this. If you want to be good, you have to be as good as God. The revelation of that is in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is a perfect law. There's nothing wrong with the law. The the law doesn't have any problem. We have the problem. There's no way that human beings can keep that law. But the Mosaic Law is a perfect expression of the holiness of a holy God. The problem is we're not able to do that. We just can't do that. So what we do is... What we, 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 instead of looking, you know, at, at, at the vertical plane, looking at God and saying, oh, I, I can't make it. I'm, I'm never going to be good enough. What we do is we look on the horizontal plane and we find other people that are not as good as we are. And it's not hard. And we find other people that is not as good and we measure ourselves against them. And when we measure ourselves against them, we're good. I was good because I wasn't a rapist or a murderer. That that was my thinking. I was was better than those kind of people, so I was good. I told you about my friend John. Uh, John had done everything wrong uh, that it was possible to do. But he was telling me that he would never hurt an old granny. And he he, he was really proud of himself for never hurting old grannies. Anybody else was fair game. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm good. I have standards. I am a good person. And all of us human beings, we're moral creatures. We want to think we're good. So we work out some way that we're good, and Jesus starts unraveling it for him. Okay, you you think you're good. Well, how good do you have to be? None is good, say one, that is God. Be perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. That's a pretty high and lofty standard. If we're honest, that's an impossible standard for any human being. There's no way I'm going to achieve that standard. It's absolutely impossible. So the first question is, only God is good, so why do you call me good? The second question is, do you keep the commandments? Uh, Don't the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Now, it's interesting here that Jesus is very selective in the commandments that he quotes to him. I, he, he, he doesn't quote the commandments relating to God, and he doesn't quote the commandment about coveting. Because he knows this man has a problem. Remember, when you're dealing with Jesus, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly where you're at, and he knows what the problem is. Uh, and so he doesn't quote all, all of us. So So he asks the man... Okay, keep the commandments. And then he quotes some of the commandments for him, knowing what he's going to do. So he reveals his self-righteousness in verse 21. And he said, all these have I kept from my youth up. Yeah, I've I've done that since I was a kid. I've always kept the commandments. I've always done right. How many times have you had somebody tell tell you when you were talking to them about the Lord that they were a good person? That they had done right. That they never hurt anybody. By the way, that's usually where, where it goes, isn't it? I've never done anybody any wrong. That's absolutely impossible. But nonetheless, people actually believe that of themselves. See, the problem with sin is that sin is not just what you do to other people. Sin is an offense against a holy God. Sin is not doing something he wants you to do or doing something he doesn't want you to do. And nobody in this room is clean when it comes to that. Nobody out there is clean when it comes to that. We've all gone our own way and done our own thing. Here's the problem, though. The problem is that what we do in our lives is we learn to sin and we learn to kind of dull our conscience so that we can basically do whatever we like and it's okay. I remember the first, the first time I remember sinning was this. My cousin Sean and I were sent. We were down uh, in, in, in Tinahili, We were down... Um, staying with his mother and we were sent over to the shops which is about three miles away, it was, it was country and we were sent over to this little shop where you signed for the, uh, for the groceries and we, to get groceries and my auntie Maureen said uh, and, and get an apple for everybody, six apples. Right? Now, uh, it seems hard to believe in this day and age but in that day and age, apples were a luxury. <laughs> They, they were something pretty important to have around. So uh, we didn't get many apples at home. Halloween was a great time for getting apples. Uh, but apart from that, you, you didn't really get apples. So myself and Sean went over and we got the apples. And, and as we're leaving, walking back, it's a long walk, we're hungry. So Sean says, Sean says let's, let's eat our apples. So, so we ate our apples. And then Sean says, well, let's have another one. And I didn't feel so good about that. But you know what? I liked apples, so we had another apple. And then Sean says, well, there's only two left. We can't bring them back. Uh, let's eat the other apples as well. And I remember eating the other apple, and I remember being consumed with guilt. Because we were going home to tell my Auntie Maureen a lie. I was going to leave, leave the lie to him uh, as far as that was concerned. But I, remember I had done something wrong. I was grieved deeply by how wrong it was. That's the first time I remember sinning, you know. I learned to do a whole lot worse than that and not to bat an island at it. And that's what we do, isn't it? We start off with very small things and because we've got a conscience that God has put in us, uh, you know, we know things are wrong, but we trample over that conscience and learn to do whatever we like so that we can make all kinds of things okay. I, I knew a man, no, I knew of this man, <clears throat> who had come to the place in his life where murdering people was... Just a daily occurrence. It was just something that wasn't a problem at all. What he had done is he had trampled on that part of himself that said, this is wrong. Do you know, we can learn to do anything and say it's okay. And that's what we do. And what's happened for this man is, what he's done is, you know, okay, so he's he's a Jewish man. He's a ruler among the Jews. He has a law he keeps. But what he's done is, what they've all done is they've rearranged the law so that it's keepable. So that what they're doing is okay. So that they're not really sinning, uh, they're just doing what normal people do. But the problem is, the Bible says by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. There's there's nobody going to be saved by being good. Nobody, absolutely nobody. That's kind of disturbing to us at times because we look at some people in the world that are particularly good and we think, you know what, surely they have to be saved. Nobody is going to be saved by being good. You see, the law has a purpose. It has a function. It's a schoolmaster, Galatians tells us, to bring us to Christ. Its job is to show us that we can't. So what this man is supposed to have learned, what every good Jew was supposed to have learned, was, okay, I've got this magnificent law that's a picture of the holiness of God. And and, and I try, and I try, but I can't keep it. And I keep failing, and I keep missing it. And I keep getting it wrong. Lord, what am I going to do if you don't do something for me? I'm lost. I'm finished. Because there's no way I can keep that law. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, he was the answer to it. Because Christ uh, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's not that we keep the law. We keep Christ. And because we keep Christ, we're we're cloaked in His righteousness, and we stand before uh, God—the perfect picture of holiness, not our holiness, but His holiness. And you see, the problem for this ruler was was this: he thought he had it together; he thought he was a good man. And you know, Jesus couldn't save good men. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, "They that are whole don't need a physician." The sinners and the publicans received him. They needed a position. They knew they needed it. But the people that were righteous in themselves, they they didn't need it. And before this rich young ruler could come to Jesus in salvation, he had to come to the place where he recognized, I'm not good. I'm not getting it right. And Jesus is in love, going to go after him and really unravel him. In what he says, because he thinks he's a good man. So Jesus gives him a test. A test that's going to reveal where his trust is. A test, if you like, that's going to blow his cover. And that's what the test is about. Jesus doesn't want his money. He doesn't even say give him give him to, to give him his money. He says, Go sell it and give it to the poor. The money doesn't matter. And uh, the money's no issue non-issue with Jesus. Jesus knew that Judas has the bag. He'd probably steal it anyway, even if he got all of it. He didn't really bother about money at all. Then That wasn't the issue at all for him. The issue is, here's somebody who thinks he's good, who thinks he loves God, who thinks he's not covetous. I'm going to help him to see that's not true at all. Because if he's going to come to me, he's going to have to realize he's not good. Do you know what? Nobody gets saved until they realize they're not good. Nobody gets saved until they come to the place where they realize they're a <laughs> sinner deserving hell. Nobody comes to Christ and, 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 and joins with him because they've been good all their lives. We're not. We just can't be. It's not in us. <laughs> oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way. Every one of us has gone our own way. Sometimes it's righteousness. Sometimes it's downright wickedness. Sometimes it's in between. But we've all gone our own way. Even this rich young ruler, even this man who thought he was good. So he gives him a test. Jesus looks at him and he says, in verse 22, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Oh, how did he do it? How did the Lord Jesus do it? How did he know to put the knife in right at the right spot? He could have given this man a list of things to do. He could have told him to go on a pilgrimage, and he'd have done it. He could have told him to, to, to build some monument, and he'd have done it. But what he did was, he went exactly to the source of this man's dependence and his pride, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you love God with all your heart and you're not covetous. All right, well, let, let me tell you to do one thing that, that'll prove uh, where you're at. Just take everything you have and sell it and give it to the poor and come, come follow me. You want eternal life? Just do that. All right. um, you see, you can't add Jesus to what you already have. It's not good works plus Jesus. Jesus must be the only hope. Jesus has to be your highest love and your only hope. And he won't accept, accept second place in your life. And whenever you get to the place where you're putting Jesus in second place, doesn't he have a wonderful way of rearranging the pieces so that you put him back? I have a granddaughter. She's, she's nine months old, Maya. She's my daughter, my youngest daughter, Bethany's uh, daughter, right? She's just nine months old. But Maya has discovered that her brother gets all the attention, So if you walk into the room and Jasper, her three-year-old brother, is getting all the attention, Maya will just stare at you until you come to the place where you give her attention. It's amazing. It's quite amazing. For this little half-pint, I can't talk. Uh, But she can actually demand your attention. Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of and demands the love of his children? And he will suffer no idols. He is a jealous God. And when you come to him, He wants to be the one that you're depending upon. You're not getting saved by your good works plus Jesus. You're getting saved because you can't save yourself. You're in a terrible pickle. You've realized that you're going to hell. You've realized that you deserve hell and you come to him to get saved. This poor man thinks, you know what, I've been good. (laughs) What else do I need to do? What what do I need to add to it? Do I need to to add something else to it, Jesus? Show me what else. And so what Jesus does is Jesus plunges the scalpel in and lays him bare. You're not that good. You're not that good. If you're going to be safe by keeping the law, you have to keep all of us. And nobody did. Nobody could. The only person that ever walked in complete holiness was the Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't you glad he did? Because he couldn't have been a perfect sacrifice if he didn't. But there never has been another person that walked in perfect holiness. And you're not that person. And we need to come to the place where we realize that, where we understand that. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. It's, what he's, what's he saying there is it's impossible. You can't put a camel through the eye of a needle and it's impossible for a rich man to get saved. Now that's a bit scary because, folks, we who live in the Western world, are rich. What, what does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says that? By the way, you need to catch this. This is in Mark. Mark 10, 21. Then Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way and sell what thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Now, look, he loves everybody. But he says particularly about this man that he loved him. Did you ever meet somebody and you just you know you just you were you, you were drawn to them. You saw something in them and you said, Yeah, I like being around this person. I, I like this person. That's what that's what it's saying. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And <clears throat> but the fact that Jesus loves him is not enough to save him. Do you know that Jesus loves you if you're not saved tonight? But the fact that he loves you is not enough to save you. You need to come to a place where you're trusting in him. You see, he says, you you lack one thing. Go go sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And Come follow me. Now remember, the money is not the issue for Jesus. There have been wealthy believers. Abraham was a wealthy man. He was was wealthy on uh, on the level of a nation state. There have been wealthy believers. The issue is, you are trusting in that, and not you can't trust in me as well. And we need to understand that. It's it's either or. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's not a helpful hint for hopeful believers. It's what God asks of us. He wants to be the first love. He wants to be the one that, that, that is recognized as the one we depend upon, that is recognized as the one that takes care of us and, and we look to him. He wants to be the, He wants to be that in salvation and he wants to be that in your life as well. He wants to be the one that you look to and you depend upon. Oh, proud creatures that we are, we want to depend upon ourselves. We want to actually look to ourselves and we want to do it ourselves. But we can't. We can't be good enough for salvation. And we can't live this life without him. And that's why you see some believers who have such a hard time living the Christian life. Because they go back and forth between depending upon him and depending upon themselves. I've been there. Have you been there? I've been in that place where you're you're depending upon yourself and God is frustrating you because he's not having that. He's kind of like my little uh, daughter, uh, my little granddaughter Maya. He's, He's going to make sure that you see him. That you put him in the right place in your life. And when it comes to salvation, he insists that you put him in the right place. One one man wrote this. When Jesus called this young man to give up his money, the man started to grieve because money was for him what the Father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. But that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. We must lose ourselves to have Jesus. You have to humble yourself. Somebody put it this way. There's a low door on the cross. And the only people who go in on their knees can actually go in. And all of us have to humble ourselves and recognize that we can't do it if we're going to be saved. Now let me tell you what I think happened, what I hope happened to the rich young ruler, right? <clears throat> rich young ruler came to Jesus eager wanting what Jesus had, wanting to be saved, wanting to have eternal life, wanting to be with Jesus. And Jesus came and asked of him the hardest thing that was possible to ask of this man. The one thing, the one thing that he was connected to that he didn't even realize. And he went away very sorrowful. Wouldn't you? Because he hadn't got eternal life. He wasn't born again. He wasn't going to heaven. I think he went home and I imagine they brought out sumptuous food for him to eat and they brought out his golden goblet and they laid everything in front of him and he looked at it all and said but I haven't got Jesus and I haven't got eternal life I think he looked around his lovely home and he thought I haven't got Jesus and I haven't got eternal life I think he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and everybody clapped him on the back and praised him. And he thought, but I have this, but I haven't got Jesus. And I think guilt, conviction fell upon this man. And I don't know how he lived if he didn't go back to Jesus and say, you can have it all. Because it was nothing. What he had was nothing by comparison to what he gave up. I don't think you could gloss over that and move ahead with it now. I don't know that. I don't think that Jesus was just putting a stumbling block in his way for the sake of it. I think he put a stumbling block in this man's way to finger him and show him his sin. Because he's good at that. He's good at bringing us to the place where we see it. And one of the people, and one of the questions, there are several people I'm going to be asking about when I get to heaven. One of them is this man. I'll I'll ask the Lord Jesus, did did he make it in? Did did he actually make it in? Now, You don't have to believe that. You don't want to. That's fine, right? Um, That's my hope. Because Jesus was not in the business of denying people heaven. He was in the business of making it possible for people to go to heaven. But then he goes on to teach his disciples. Um, And they that heard it said... Who then can be saved? Not how can a rich man be saved, because they realized. Who can be saved? If we have to come to the place where we give up everything to be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus said, the things that are impossible with man are possible with God. Jesus acknowledged the human impossibility of salvation. To underscore the need for God to do what people cannot. We cannot be good enough. Not in a hundred lifetimes. We cannot be good enough. It's impossible. We can only trust God to do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. See, the Old Testament Jew, if he was honest, he came to the end of himself when he was faced with the law. Because it's a great law. It's a marvelous picture of the holiness of God. But it's impossible for a human being to keep. The problem's not with the law, the problem's with us. And God knew that. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He sent His Son to do for us what the law could not, to bring us to that place where we were trusting in a way that the law could never bring us. He sent his son to actually become the law that we receive. Let me read it for you in Romans because I'm, I'm going to butcher it if I don't. Romans chapter 8. I'll just read it for you quickly. Right? There is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8 verse 1, to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Isn't that wonderfully put? What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The problem was ours. Um, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And what it needs is, it needs a complete surrender. You need to come to the place where you realize, I can't. I can't be good. If it's on my merits, I'm going to end up in hell. But Jesus was completely good. And he says, if I believe on him, that he died on the cross with my sin on his shoulders, that he died on the cross to pay for my sin and that he was buried and that he rose again proving he could do it if I will trust in what he did I can be saved but mark it down you can't have any trust in anything else other than that you are so lost that there's nothing else that can save you I was raised with a religion that basically thought that somehow at the end of it all, there was a weighing scales. And most religions really come to that place. And in the the end, in the weighing scales, there was going to be all your sins on one side of the weighing scales and all your good deeds on the other side of the weighing scales and somehow you were hoping it would balance. problem with that thought is that your sins weigh like lead and your good deeds weigh like feathers. You could have good deeds for a thousand years. And never balance the scales. It's impossible. The only thing that can save a person is the lovely Lord Jesus. And he's marvelous at bringing us to the place where we see our need of him. But understand this. That when he saves you, he doesn't just save you and leave you there with nothing. This rich young ruler would not have been at a loss if he had given up all for the Lord Jesus Christ. He would not have been, he thought he would be, because that's where he was depending. I I read a story, you may have heard it, right? But a man was extremely wealthy. Uh, His will was full of art pieces, very expensive art pieces. This man had a son who had died before him, a son whom he loved, and this son would have been his only heir. Soon after the death of the wealthy man, a public auction was held that included the valuable art pieces. People came from all over the world because of those works of art. Over a thousand people gathered to participate in the auction. The auctioneer began the auction by offering up for sale a portrait painted by the deceased's son. It was a rather plain painting, not at all like the other expensive art pieces. The floor opened for bids, but there weren't any. After what seemed like a long silence, a little old man walked down the aisle. As he neared the front of the room, the auctioneer recognized him He had been the servant of the wealthy man. He meagerly and almost shamefully offered a couple of dollars from his pocket for the child-drawn portrait. The auctioneer hit the gavel and said, sold. Uh, The many people in the room shifted with excitement, preparing for the main part of the selling to begin. But much to their surprise and chagrin, the auctioneer hit the gavel again and said, auction over. The room filled with loud chatter and confusion, wondering at the early close of the auction. The auctioneer went on to explain, In the will of the master, the instructions specifically said to offer for sale uh, the painting drawn by his son first, and that whosoever gets the painting of his son gets the whole art collection. The master had decided well in advance that whoever loved his son and accepted him could not only have his son's work, but all the other benefits that belonged to his father." Listen, when we get Jesus, that's what we get. If you get the Son, you get everything. You'll never lack. He'll take care of you. You'll never give up more than He will give to you. You'll never come to the place where you're where you're at a loss because of what you gave for Jesus. Whatever He's asking you to let go of in your life, whatever's blocking you from salvation tonight, would you just give it up? Let it go. Say yes, Lord. Because what's going to happen is you're going to find salvation, but you're going to get the Son too. You're the most precious promise in the Bible. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the most precious promise. Having been saved, He promises He will always be with you. What more could you want? What more could you ask? So as we close, let me say this, right? Being eager could not save this man. He was eager. He came running and and kneeled to Jesus. Being good couldn't save him. He wasn't that good and neither are you or I. Jesus loving him didn't save him. Jesus loved him. Don't don't, don't you almost imagine that, that... you know, because Jesus loved him, he would somehow find a way to save him. No. Jesus loving him couldn't save him. Jesus promising him riches in heaven didn't bring him in. Only a choice to trust Jesus above all else could save this man. You know, he reminds me of uh, that poor man that stood on the train tracks. The only thing that could have saved him was to get off the tracks. The only thing that can save anyone is to come to the place where we humbly bow, where we surrender, where we yield to Jesus and let him have his way in our lives. And it looks like death. It looks like the end. But you know what? It's the beginning of life. Everything starts at that point. There's no other way There's nothing else that can save you, only him. If you haven't, would you come to him right now? Don't wait. Don't wait for for a better offer. Don't wait for conviction or something else to happen in your life. Listen, if you haven't trusted him, would you do that right now? Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this evening and for this dear people. And oh, Lord, we thank you. that you are a great savior. And we thank you that you have a power and an ability to put your finger on the need of our hearts. And Lord, I know that you're doing it in this room and you're doing it with those that are online as well because you're that powerful. Oh Lord, may none pull away, may none walk away sorrowful, but Lord, may each one come fully through to salvation. And Lord, may you get the glory and we get the joy in Jesus' name, Amen.